may be seated. I am pleased to introduce uh, Pastor Steve Jeffrey. Uh, hope everybody's had an opportunity to meet him and visit with him. And uh, now you're going to have the opportunity and the privilege to hear him teach. And this is a man with great enthusiasm for what he does. He loves uh, the Bible, he loves to teach, and he loves to be here to see what I see, which is an audience, a group of people gathered because we're serious about this. So uh, you're about to uh, be blessed in amazing ways, and so uh, Pastor Jeffrey, welcome. Well, thank you very much, although the applause is uh, really quite out of place because I discovered today that I'm really very boring. I don't have sheep or pigs or I was sitting at a table today for dinner time with a bunch of people who have chickens and rabbits and alpacas alpacas something. Somebody had a llama or something called that llama. I don't even have an accent. Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated and consecrated it and set up its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of Hananel, and next to him the men of Jericho built, and next to them Zachor the son of Imri built. The sons of Hassanah built the fish gate. They laid its beams and set up its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them Merimoth, the son of Uriah, the son of Hakos, repaired. And next to them, Meshullam, the son of Berechiah, son of Meshezabel, repaired. And next to them, Zadok, the son of Barnar, repaired. And next to them, the Tekoites repaired. But their nobles would not stoop to serve. 
their Lord. Joida, the son of Parsia, and Meshulam, the son of Bosedaya, repaired the gate of Yeshana. They laid its beams and set up its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them repaired Melatai, the Gibeonite, and Jadon, the Merothite, the men of Gibeon and of Mitzpah, the seat of the governor of the province beyond the river. Next to them, Uziel, the son of Harhiah, goldsmiths, repaired. Next to him, Ananiah, one of the perfumers, repaired, and they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Next to them, Rephiah, the son of Hur, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired. Next to them, Jediah, the son of Haramath, repaired opposite his house. And next to him, Hattush, the son of Meshedniah, repaired. Malchijah, the son of Harib, and Hashub, the son of Pahath Moab, repaired another section, and the Tower of the Ovens. Next to him, Shalom, the son of Halashesh, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired, he and his daughters. Hanan and the inhabitants of Zanoah repaired the Valley Gate. They rebuilt it and set up its doors, its bolts, and its bars, and repaired a thousand cubits of the wall, as far as the Dung Gate. Malchijah, the son of Rechab, repaired the district of Beth Hakarim, repaired the Dung Gate. Sorry, ruler of the district of Beth Hakarim repaired the Dung Gate. He rebuilt it and set up its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And Shalom, the son of Kol Hose, ruler of the district of Mizpah, repaired the Fountain Gate. He rebuilt it and covered it and set up its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And he built the wall of the pool of Shelah of the king's garden as far as the steps that go down from the city of David. After him, Nehemiah, the son of Azbuk, ruler of half the district of Bethazur, repaired to a point opposite the tombs of David, as far as the artificial pool, and as far as the house of the mighty men. After him, the Levites repaired, Rehom, the son of Bani. Next to him, Hashabiah, ruler of half the district of Kilah, repaired for his district. After him, their brothers repaired, Babai, the son of Penanad, ruler of half the district of Kailah. Next to him, Ezra, the son of Jeshua, a ruler of Mitzpah, repaired another section opposite the ascent of the armory of the Buttress. After him, Barak, the son of Zabai, repaired another section from the Buttress to the door of the house of Elijah, the high priest. After him, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hakos, repaired another section from the door of the house of Eliashib to the end of the house of Eliashib. After him, the priests, the men of the surrounding area, repaired. After them, Benjamin and Hashib repaired opposite their house. After them, Azariah, the son of Marsiah, son of Ananiah, repaired the tie beside his own house. After him, Benui, the son of Penadad, repaired another section from the house of Azariah to the buttress and to the corner. Palau, the son of Uzai, repaired opposite the buttress and the tower projecting from the upper house of the king uh, at the corner of the guard. After him, Padiah, the son of Parash, and the temple servants living on Ophel, repaired to a point opposite the water gate on the east and the projecting tower. After him, the Tekoites repaired another section opposite the great projecting tower as far as the wall of Ophel. Opposite the, above the horse gate, the priests repaired, each one opposite his own house. After them, Zadok, the son of Emma, repaired opposite his own house. After him, Shemaiah, the son of Shechaniah, the keeper of the east gate, repaired. After him, Hananiah, the son of Shelemiah, and Hanan, the sixth son of Zalaf, repaired another section. After him, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, repaired opposite his chamber. After him, Malchijah, one of the goldsmiths, repaired as far as the house of the temple servants and of the merchants, opposite the muster gate, and to the upper chamber of the corner, and between the upper chamber of the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants repaired. I want to talk a little bit about your future, what you plan to do, 
what your aspirations are. I know that you are all currently doing different things and you have different aspirations for what you'd like to do in the future. Things like work, study, professional development, family, marriage, and so on. I want to try and address the ambitions that you have and place them in a context biblically that I hope will guide you on a, a more appropriate Christian path than many young Christian men and women uh, seem inclined to take in our day. Um, there are two interwoven strands of our culture that make this necessary. The first is that we are living in an increasingly ruined civilization. We are the heirs of, uh, in the West and in America in particular, of a, a glorious political and social order which is the fruit of Christian faithfulness for many generations. But that is crumbling as Christian faithfulness crumbles in the last few generations and increasingly in ours. And so you now live in a world where uh, you can't take for granted the Christian atmosphere that your grandparents could have done in the 50s, for example, and certainly not in the 19th century, um, and where you will face hostility and temptations to go along and be of the world as well as in it, to pick up the theme of this uh, week's talk. So it's the first cultural feature. The second feature, of course, is precisely that. You're tempted to go along with the crowd, and in particular to embrace a very thinly baptized but basically secular cluster of ambitions. What are your ambitions? Or the things I listed before. And there's nothing wrong with them, of course. Um, career, study, professional development, marriage, family, and so on and so forth. There's absolutely nothing wrong. There's a lot right with them, but there is a, a central coordinating principle that is missing, and I want to reinstate it for you by urging you to sacrifice. Now, I want to encourage you this evening to lay down your lives in whatever way it turns out to be necessary. And that's why I read Nehemiah chapter 3. You might have wondered what on earth God's doing, reading that long and at times seemingly somewhat tedious and apparently irrelevant list of who prepared what bit of what war in Jerusalem in the 5th century BC. There are no irrelevant details in the Bible. I know you would have discovered this from your own pastors, but let me say to you again what I'm sure they show you every Sunday. Every single word, every twist and turn, of even the most arcane looking bits of the Bible. Um, is significant. And if nothing else tonight, I hope you'll realise that as we look here at Nehemiah chapter 3. Just a reminder of the setting, just flick back in your Bible to the previous page, and I'll, I'll remind you of what we all know um, about the, the context, in the, the historical context of this book. We're in the 5th century BC, in about the year 446. And what's happened is that the Israelite exiles who were in Babylon 
have returned to their land of Israel in about 538 BC, so just under a century previously, the exiles returned with great fanfare and great excitement. The decree of Cyrus the Persian overturning the Babylonians' previous foreign policy and allowing the, the captured nations to go back to their own place and basically rebuild. And so they went back with great excitement. And Nehemiah remained, what well, Nehemiah was involved but Nehemiah was one of the descendants of some of the people who remained in the region of Babylon, now called by Persia. And he hears, 85, 90 years later or so, how things are going, and he's not excited about what he is. Chapter 1, verse 1, with me, I'll show you. The words of Jeremiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, that's the uh, December 446 BC, 20th year of the king. As I was in Susa, the capital, the Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. How's it going? What's it like back in the land? How have you rebuilt? Is the culture of the people of God now thriving and flourishing in the worship of the living God, taking place with joy and vigour and excitement? And are all the nations streaming to Mount Zion to hear of the law of the Lord and beat their swords into plowshares and not learn more anymore? And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who have survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. The city remains in ruins. And Nehemiah spends the rest of chapter 1 actually praying. Look at verse 4. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And he, he's a man of some social standing, end of chapter 1, he's cut there out of the king, so he's some kind of court official. And then chapter 2, he basically asks permission to go back to Jerusalem to assist or to perhaps galvanise the exiles who returned there to rebuild. And so he goes back to chapter 2, he starts to inspect it in chapter 3, they start to rebuild the wall. You see that situation is not anything like the same as ours, but it has these resemblances to it, doesn't it? They've got to find a way of building a future in a world where all of the things that previously they might have clung to and taken for granted are gone. They've got to rebuild their ruined civilization. What are their ambitions going to be? What are the men and women who find themselves there going to have to do in order to serve the Lord in this kind of situation? Chapter 3 begins the story of that rebuilding. And you know Jeremiah is, in the, uh, Nehemiah is known as the man of action. He's the, the, uh, the great leader of the people of Israel who galvanised them, uh, sword in one hand, trowels and shovels in the other to rebuild while they fought off their enemies and refused to bow before the tyrant bullies of the tin pot tribal nations around them that still remain in the land of Canaan. You know, Nehemiah is that man of action. Very interesting, just parenthetically, before we jump into chapter 3. Before he was a man of action, he was a man of prayer. Look at the depths. It happened in the month of Kislev in the 20th year, December 446 BC, chapter 1, verse 1. Chapter 2, verse 1. When does he actually go to the king? In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Archdiocese. That's probably March or April, 445 BC. It's three or four months later. What has Nehemiah been doing in the meantime? He's been praying. 
for three or four months before he goes up to the king. You see, you don't pray about your work. Prayer is the work. Maybe we talk about that a little bit more with some more uh, exhortation from Pastor Booth um, later on. But what we find then in chapter 3 is this long description of what happened. So basically, Nehemiah gets all these guys together and they start at the sheep gate in chapter 3, verse 1. And he describes who does what all the way around the wall of Jerusalem. You know, it's a hundred yards long, this wall of the old city. And you get all the way back to the sheep gate at the end of chapter um, 3, verse 32. And you've got this long description. And as always, embedded in what looks you know, superficially like just details, just a long list, embedded in there are profoundly significant lessons that these men and women learned about sacrifice, about what they needed to do, about how they needed to lay down their lives for their country, for their city, for their people, for their Lord. This is a picture of Christ, actually, who knows a little bit about laying down his life for his brothers. It's a, it's a, and as we see, we'll see actually three different ways in which they sacrifice. So they sacrifice their vocations, they sacrifice their self-interest, they sacrifice their status, and in every case, they're giving us both a picture of Christ, who is to come, and they're giving us the opportunity to embrace a new, coordinating, central aspiration. Before you think, I want to join the military, before you think I want to be a mum, before you think I want to be a great grand farm and have how many kids are before you think about all those points of your ambition, will you think, I want to lay down my life, I want to sacrifice? Will you be like these people? Because it might just turn out that this is what's needed. They lay down their vocations, they lay down their self-interest and lay down their status. First, they lay down their vocations. Just look at this chapter. Just, I mean, if your Bible's open, if you haven't got a Bible with you, don't use a phone, use the Bible of the person next to you. You can use a phone if you must, but that's a, it's a telephone. It's not, it's, not a, it's not a Bible. You get a Bible. You get a paper. <laughs> what do you notice as you look through this chapter? And you, uh, all these, the people who repaired this bit of the wall and that bit of the wall and the other bit of the wall. What do you notice? I'll tell you what I notice. I notice a distinct lack of builders. <laughs> chapter 3, verse 1. Eliashib the high priest rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. Now, I'll stop right there for a second. Like, okay, you've got some building work he's doing. Let's go get the pastor. <laughs> no, really bad idea. Don't do that, unless there's nobody else. Unless your high priest has got to put his books and his scrolls away and get his hands dirty and his knees sore for the first time in a long time. To do what needs to be done rather than what he wants to do. There's a bunch of things they never teach you at seminary. They never teach all the most important things at seminary. Uh, some seminaries try and aspire to teach you some of them, but I don't know a single seminary in the world that teaches you to build. Too bad. That's what we need to do. But it's not just the high priest. Verse 8, look at me. Next to them, Uziel, the son of Harhiah, 
goldsmiths repaired. Next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers repaired. And they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. You've got verse 17. Uh, you've got Levites with Rehum, the son of Barney. Verse 22. You've got more priests. Verse 32. Right down at the bottom of the chapter. Uh, verse 31 and 32. Goldsmiths and merchants. And we well, don't find it's the goldsmith saying, oh, I'm sorry, no, I'm a little bit too delicate for this. Yeah. My calling, you know. <laughs> <laughs> when I ask you, they're going to rock up at Jerusalem and like, well, uh, I'm going to go find some rose petals. <laughs> Sorry, um, uh, we, we aren't going to need any perfumers for quite a while. Are you willing to lay down your vocation? Now, some of them would have done so temporarily. I mean, the priests and Levites went back to being priests and Levites, certainly by chapter 12, because they're doing you know, a bunch of stuff in the worship context of the people. But whether temporary or permanently, I don't know how long it was till they actually needed a professional perfumery in Jerusalem. But these were men and women who were willing to say, well, look, I have my plans, but plans change. As Mike Tyson says, everyone has a plan until he gets punched in the face. <laughs> and so what are you going to do? Are you going to change in the sense of being willing to take up your new calling. Because it's what the rest of the world needs. Interesting, if you read um, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, 14, or the kind of spiritual gifts section, uh, chapter 12, uh, there are many gifts, and they're all of equal dignity in the sight of God, they all come from the same Lord. Chapter 13, the the way to utilise the gifts is in love. It's the love chapter. Love is patient, love is kind. Yeah, yeah. The one they read at weddings, which is really hilarious, because actually it's a repeat. Love is patient. Love is kind. We are not reading that at weddings. And that's how it works. So, so all the gifts have equal dignity in the sight of God. They're to be exercised in love. Then chapter 14 is a test case. What's to be preferred, prophecy or tongues? And the answer is prophecy. Whatever prophecy is, and it's complicated what prophecy is. But the reason is crucial. Because Paul says, look, if I say, if I, I'd rather say five words that you all can understand than 10,000 words in a tongue that you can't understand. What will help everybody else is what I do. This excuses the whole of the Bible. It's not a bad thing, obviously, for you to aspire to do something. And maybe many of you will get to do that. Are you willing to lay down your calling because other people might just need you to do something else? And it isn't, isn't it an astonishing thing? The things that the Holy Spirit thinks it's worth recording. Parchment is expensive. Papyrus is expensive. And Nehemiah bothers to write so that all the world would know that this goldsmith laid aside the dignity, the high-earning capacity, the social standing of his profession, and picked up a trowel and a shovel and started hacking away at dirt with the rest of us. Let all the world know for the whole of history the names of these men and their families. Because they sacrificed. It's interesting how plans change sometimes. Um, I'm reminded of the story of um, Benjamin Warfield. How many of you heard of B.B. Warfield? 
Now you have the story of Phoebe Warfield's husband, his wife, Annie. The, the, the story is, is, is not really very well recorded, but best I can make it out, what happened is he married his wife, Annie, either immediately before or immediately after he went to Germany to study under the great German biblical scholar Franz Dietrich. Um, but she was, one person in the story I've read um, recounts that she was struck by lightning shortly after they married on a railway platform and permanently disabled, but paralysed, or, or maybe other versions of the story say lightning struck nearby but left her so emotionally shattered that she was a physical invalid for the whole of the rest of her life. And they married at quite a young age, and Warfield died quite old, and he spent the whole of the rest of his life. Never for more than two hours was he apart from his wife. He'd go lecture, he'd write, but he would never be separated from Annie for more than two hours. Isn't that astonishing? No, no, no. You, know, you guys are all single, and I hope that you find a, a wife or a husband. And I, I'm sure that you have your dreams. Right? <coughs> How, how do you like um, the better for worse? For richer? For poorer? And all these the aspirations that I'm asking you to place within this framework of sacrifice are not bad aspirations. But it's not a bad thing. It's a really good thing to aspire to be able to have to have children. What if you can't have children? I have no comment. What will you do? Will you be so existentially torn apart because you had fixed all your hope on a good thing without placing it in the context of the sacrifice that actually sanctifies those good things and prevents them from becoming idols? Any good thing can become an idol if it becomes the God you worship. And once it becomes an idol, it destroy you. It will destroy you. Don't let it do that. So if you hold these things lightly as gifts from the Lord, it, it also makes you more grateful. Because <laughs> you realise, like, what do I have? I didn't see. Uh, and then especially in relation to the, the vocations for which we work, why then do you boast as though you did not? So much of what we have and are is a gift. It's, a, it's an accident of providence. It's your genes, it's your parental nurture, it's the school you're at, it's that teacher who was willing to put up with all your stupid, messy homework again and again and again and again and finally the penny dropped and you started working and then you pulled your finger out and actually did pretty well at school and got to college and got a good job, whatever it was. It wasn't you, the unadorned achiever, was it? It was a gift. Life and breath and everything else. And, and if, we, if we approach life in the way that Jesus did, with the commitment to lay it all down, then every day that we have whatever it is we have, we'll have it with gratitude and joy and thankfulness. Uh, just one anecdote from our life. We, we, uh, my wife and I married in 1999. We were at that time uh, members of an evangelical church. It was more reformed than anything else, but it wasn't um, the kind of reformed context in which it was obvious to us that every aspect of our lives ought to be brought into the worship of Christ. That, that, was a, that was a discovery that we made in the first few years of our marriage. And so one of the things that 
uh, Nicole didn't realise she was going to be doing when she graduated with a degree in chemical engineering from the University of Oxford was spending 20 years of her life educating our children. She was a very, very good engineer. When I started reading some books about Christian education, and it didn't take me long to be persuaded to actually possibly we, we need to educate our kids Christianly because everything comes under the rule of Christ. There's no square inch uh, of all creation about which Christ does not say mine, Abraham Piper, butchered the quote, but you know the quotation. And so it's easy for me to come to the okay, we're going to have to do something. We can't send our kids to these government schools where you know, some well-meaning Muslim or atheist is going to fill their head with Darwinians and can't we? So we're going to, we'll have to, we can't afford a Christian school, so we'll have to educate them at home. It's really easy for me to reach that conclusion. And for my wife, it was a... Uh, it was a, a change of direction that would have been absolutely shattering if she had not already previously embraced sacrifice as the overarching principle under which everything else is going to be subsumed. So, of course, you have your ambitions, but then things change. So, your vocations. Second, now these people in Nehemiah chapter 3 sacrificed, lays down their self-interest. Now this is fascinating. It's all about the details. Right? And if you look closely at the details, ask yourself where exactly were these people repairing the wall? Look at me, I'll show you some examples. Verse 23. After them, Benjamin and Hashem repaired opposite their house. After them, Azariah, the son of Marsiah, the son of Ananiah, repaired beside his own house. And this makes sense, doesn't it? It's like, look, I built this place. It's like, I have to write this walk. I know how it's constructed. I've got kind of skin in the game. I'll, I'll rebuild this dish. Yeah, it kind of makes sense. Where would you go to start rebuilding but your own house? Makes sense. And a number of other people did the same. Uh, verse 28, above the horse gate, the priests repaired each one opposite his own house. Verse 29, after them, Zadok, the son of Immer, repaired opposite his own house. Verse, 20, uh, verse 30, second half of verse 20, uh, sorry, verse 30. Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, repaired opposite his chambers. See, they're all repairing that they know, who they own, who they've got personal vested interest in. And there's no reproach cast upon them for that, that's fine. That's but, what it does is to cast into stark relief the people who did differently. Verse 1. Sorry, not verse 1. Verse 7. Next to them, repairs Melatiah, the Gibeonite, and Jaden, the Moronothanite. What I do with this chapter? The seat of the uh, the men of Gibeon and of Mitzvah, the seat of the governor of the province beyond the river. Now just think about that for a second. Um, the men of Gibeon and the men of Mitzpah did not live in Jerusalem. Yeah, those towns are six, seven miles away. They did not repair outside their own towns. Their house is fine. They're down in Gibeon and Mitzpah. They didn't right. They came up to repair somebody else's property. They got skin in somebody else's game. Similarly, verse 27. Um, after him, the Tekoites repaired another section. What's interesting is another section because they've been mentioned earlier in the chapter. They've done a bit over here. It's like, we've done this. 
or not making a film now, but I just go knock off and go to the pub to see it. No, it's not that over there that needs doing as well. Let's do that. Let's do everything that needs doing. Let's work until our fingers are bleeding, not just until we've shown up and got our name in the list. Wherever you need us, we'll be there. The most, the most striking example, actually, is right at the beginning. This, this blew my mind when I realised what's going on here. Look at this. Look at this. Next to him, so this is next to Elijah, priest, the men of Jericho built. Now, we read that and you just skipped over it. Then you've got to find men of Jericho. That is mind-blowing. When you realise what those men did. Jericho is located about 17 miles from Jerusalem. It's a long way away. It's a long day's walk. Especially because Jericho is about 800 feet below sea level and Jerusalem is about 2,200 feet above sea level. So Jericho is, if you look at it on Google Earth, basically, it's like this bright splodge of green in an ocean of brown. <laughs> the, the whole of that part of Israel is semi-arid. But Jericho has this spring which pours out like two or three cubic meters of water a second. It's absolutely huge amount of water. And it's, it's, it may be one of the oldest inhabited, continuously inhabited areas on the surface of the earth. It is a beautiful, beautiful place. Even today, it is an oasis. It is a luxury resort. Um, and it is exactly the sort of place that you would stay put in if you heard that people, a day's march up that hill, need help. It's like, Check guys, sort it themselves. 17 miles, 3,000 foot climb. But that's not all. See, the road from Jericho to Jerusalem was no ordinary road. You know about the road from Jericho to Jerusalem. You all know about the Jericho road. Quote, a man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And what happened next? And he fell into the hands of robbers. Jesus parable of the Good Samaritan. Everybody knows about the Jericho Road. Right? It's a barren, dusty, rocky, lonely, winding, isolated dirt track. A man who goes down from Jerusalem to Jericho is going to fall into the hands of robbers. Nobody's surprised by that bit in Jesus' parable because everybody knows that that's the bad one. So here we are in our little oasis of peacefulness. Our resort town, right? Our beautiful little kind of marble villa and like ocean view and all this kind of like down by the Dead Sea. And all those people are in trouble, a day's march away through the badlands, get a cool voice. Let's get to work. Because they understood sacrifice. They understood that what life is about is not what can I get, it's what can I give? It's better to give than to receive. See? That's somebody once said. Tragically, not everybody's driven by the same conviction. If you, um, if you look in Nehemiah chapter 11, it's turned out at the end of the chapter, there's this long list of villages outside Jerusalem. And... Um, when you just read chapter 11 on its own, it's not obvious why that long list of villages should be included there. But when you read it in the light of chapter 3, you realise one of the reasons is because most of those people are conspicuous by their absence. All these villages whose inhabitants were not represented. 
among those who laid down their comforts and laid down their callings and laid down their lives to go and build the civilization at the top of the hill so the Lord could return to his people. His life about sacrifice. It's interesting, there's a number of contemporary issues that I was shooting over. I want to make some brief comments on, and maybe this will open up questions um, uh, in the next pastoral panel. Let me talk, let me just talk about one issue. Um, and it's, it's related tangentially to this issue of um, sacrificing your own self interest. It's the issue of masculinity. What's that got to do with anything? Well, let me tell you. In, in the last few years among uh, reformed folks, there's been a renewed interest in articulating the goodness of masculinity. You've got books entitled It's Good to Be a Man, and so on and so forth. And, uh, uh, there's a lot of um, social media chatter, I understand, about what real men are and what real men do. And I think it's understandable. I mean, we're living in an age where um, manhood has been destabilised by several generations of feminism and then critical social justice ideology and, um, and the, the, the way of thinking about the world, which means that anybody in a position of power or privilege is automatically to be regarded as less morally worthy than others. And so, so men who have in many uh, spheres of life rightly or wrongly, in many cases rightly, found themselves in positions of leadership are increasingly looked down upon. So men, men who just want to be God's men like, like they're, they're, they're clutching around for people to show them what to do. And there's all these books about masculinity and uh, I'm afraid there are just some very childish ideas in many of those books about what being a man involves. I mean, <laughs> like one of the uh, pastor Booth said earlier, everybody's trying to sell you something, right? So you go on Facebook or whatever else it is, and you can sign up for a thousand dollar weekend course, man, for somebody to basically shout at you and make you run through the mud for 48 hours. So. You know, make you like into a real man. But it's just like it's so pathetic. One of my friends, um, Jerry Boyer, made a comment recently. Um, his father uh, was a Christian man, hard-working, blue-collar guy for his whole life, worked very, very hard, provided his family for his whole life. And Jerry never once heard him talk about masculinity. He just did it. He was ready to sacrifice. See, because what masculinity actually is, is male Christ likeness. So, so here's, a, here's an example. Like, how, how should a man relate to his wife? Well, I'm just, I, honestly, I'm sick to death of all this pathetic, insecure posturing from men about. Um, being the boss around the house. It's like, it's so childish. Obviously, a godly woman is called to submit to her husband. It says so in the Bible. But what is the man called to do? And talk about? And focus his attention on? And aspire to do? And make his ambition? And make the confidence of his prayers? What does the man do? Well, oh, he's just fine. Just read it. Just to remind ourselves of what it actually says. Husband. Love your wives as Christ loved the church 
and gave himself up for them. So the verb is paradigm three scholars. It's the word used in Romans 4.25 to describe giving up your life unto death. It's a technical term meaning to, to lay down your life voluntarily so that you're dead now. That's how we ought to live. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy without blemish. That's what Christ does for the church. Purifies and loves and nurtures and cherishes and seeks the good and the sanctification and the holiness and the joy of the church. And in the same way, quote, husbands should love their wives. But guys, you will have plenty of opportunity to be a man at two in the morning when kid number two starts screaming and wakes up kid number one and kid number three. You have plenty of opportunity. You do not need to pay a thousand dollars for somebody to shout at you and make you run through the money. <laughs> what you do need to do, what you do need to do is to pray and strive for the mindset that is absolutely resolutely committed to a life of working hard. And a life of fighting against sin. But how dare you seek to exercise dominion in the home if you can't take dominion over the sins and temptations of the devil. Who do you think you are? Really? And Pastor Kelly uh, said earlier, did, and, and this, I, I come across the same data in another context, so I'm pretty sure this is right, but in psychological terms, the, the experience of um, uh, resisting a temptation, whether it's to smoke if you're trying to smoke, or to drink if you're trying to get drinking, or to sin if you're trying to get a sin, right, is about as intense as feeling a little bit hungry. Right? And yet, we, our churches are filled, filled with many can't stop looking at porn, can't stop. Yeah. Really? Yeah. So, working hard, and being ready to sacrifice, and fighting against sin, and being the, being the kind of godly, humble, gracious, secure in your masculinity man, where God in you would want to marry, and raising children, and worshipping God, and then just die. <laughs> That's what men do. That's what Jesus well, Raising children, then. That's what Jesus gave his life for his brother. And it's just glitteringly clear, isn't it? In Nehemiah 3, as in so many other parts of Scripture, you hear about the picture of Christ sacrificing his self-interest. Finally, uh, these men and women sacrificed their status. Again, look at, look at the details. Look at who's working. The high priest. You know, like, um, clergy don't get a terribly good rap in the Bible. <laughs> right? And with some justification, but Elisha, hats off. Kudos. High priest, first on the list to start the work. Good for him. There are repeated references to rulers, verse 9, verse 12, verse 14, verse 15, 16, 17, 18, 19. You notice all that? All the rulers, all the leaders of the community who set the example. You want them to follow you, gentlemen. Well, you've got to go in the direction you want them to go. They sacrificed their status. Verse 12, ladies, look. Next to him 
Shalom, the son of Halahesh, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired. Like, he's a serious, like, he's basically the city councillor for half the town. <coughs> and his daughters. But yeah, but my old grandpa wanted to be a princess. Well, they, these guys already are princesses. It's like, well, I guess it's some work these days. <coughs> my favourite princess. She's dead now, actually. Um, Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. The late Queen Elizabeth, late Lincoln, remarkable Christian lady. They maintained a godly Christian witness in a subdued way, but throughout a fairly turbulent 20th century, let's face it. Um, one less known fact about um, her late majesty um, she is probably the most photographed person who's ever lived. Um, she, has, she had an official photo on, on average every day of her reign for the best part of seven decades. And you know, most of the photos she's got a little hat and she's got little gloves. <laughs> and she wore gloves all the time because otherwise she'd constantly be getting ill from all the people's hands she had to shake. You know, <laughs> but you know my favourite photograph of Queen Elizabeth II? I'm not sure some of this with some of you before, but um, um, she's not wearing white gloves and a pretty hat. In fact, she wasn't even queen. It was taken in 1945 when the young princess Elizabeth, who was um, at that time, in that calling known as Second Subaltern Elizabeth Windsor, is photographed removing, you know, on her hands and knees in these grinding overalls, removing a wheel from a truck. Because during the Second World War, she enlisted in the military. She didn't have to fight, obviously. But she nonetheless got her hands dirty. Little Princess Lizzie, <coughs> like these women here. Yeah, people sometimes criticise the late Queen for not being Calvinist or something. But, see, Calvinist, I'm more Calvinist than any of you, I guarantee. But, but, but where, where, where godliness is put to the test, like, nobody would have criticised her in 1945 if she just stayed with her pretty white gloves. But she's willing to get her hands dirty to do her part to sacrifice her status for the sake of her people? Or do you want to be remembered like those men in verse 5? Next to them the Tekoites repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve their Lord. You know, on the last day, the day of judgment is a day of unveiling. The day of judgment is not the day when Jesus and God the Father and the Spirit of God decide what to do with this all. It's the day on which they unveil the truth about all of us. And there will be someone that day about whom God the Father says, yeah, uh, you would not stoop to serve. Whereas Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he was going back to God, rose from supper and he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist and he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Because that's what needed to be done because the kingdom of God is built on sacrifice. So, will you frame everything, all of your ambitions, all of your vocations, all of your aspirations within that overall picture of laying down your life, sacrificing for the sake of others. Because if you will, then you'll be following that Lord Jesus. Let's pray.
Merciful Father, thank you for our Lord Jesus, who not only spoke but did deeds of sacrifice. Teach us, we pray, to be like him, to frame all of our ambitions, all of our deeds within that picture where we self-consciously are seeking to find ways to lay down our lives for the sake of others. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.